What's up, everybody? This episode of the Smoking Tire Podcast is brought to you by Off the Record. You know about Off the Record. We love Off the Record. They are the best. You know why? Because they stop the bad things from happening. You know what I'm saying? All of the bad things that can happen. Every bad thing that can happen while behind the wheel of your car. No, I'm just kidding. But sometimes you get pulled over and ticketed for things that are stupid. Not even true sometimes. You know what I've learned about cops? They make stuff up. They lie. They lie on the stand. They lie to you. They don't really have a good reason, to be honest. And off the record is here for you. They're your advocate. Sometimes you get pulled over and you go, eh, I'll just plead guilty to this ticket. It'll just, you know, I'll pay the fine. I'll go about my business. But that is stupid because it's not just the fine. It'll follow you around. It's the insurance, it's the court costs, it's all those extra fees. Off the Record is here. Offtherecord.com slash TST or code TST10 on the Off the Record app. They will fight any and all tickets from the small to the very big on your behalf. They will set you up with a qualified attorney in the jurisdiction in which you got that ticket. They'll go to court, they'll deal with the prosecutors, and they'll get those points off of your record. Their success rate is amazing. Off the record is so good at what they do. You don't need to worry about it. They just handle it for you. It's superb. All you got to do is go to offtherecord.com slash TST or code TST10 on the Off the Record app. 10% off all legal services with Off the Record. They will set you up. And, of course, Dylan Optics sunglasses, the only sunglasses I ever wear. They have been a sponsor for 13 years now of the Smoke and Tire. Not only have they been a loyal sponsor, they make the best sunglasses around. Double polarized, folks. Double. Two polarizers. It's better than one. Plus, basically totally customizable. You choose your frame, your color, matte finish lens. You get a pair that you're not going to see on anybody else. I have never, ever, ever in 13 years wearing Dylan Optics sunglasses every day. I've never seen another person wearing the same glasses as me. Never. Even when it's Clapman, it's never been the same. He's got all the same glasses I've got because he gets hooked up too. And his don't even look like mine. He's right next to me. Dylan Optics is the best. Their glasses are amazingly high quality. The, gla the lenses are incredible. The colors are really cool. They're very different from any other glasses. They've got a Wayfarer styles, wraparound styles, aviator styles. They can even do prescriptions. They do it all. Go to thesmokingtire.com. Click on the Partners tab, and then you'll see the Dylan banner right under there. If you use that link, I'll send you a free Smoking Tire t-shirt with each pair of Dylan Optics sunglasses ordered. All right, folks, on today's show, it's a crew show. Zach and I are at home because Zach's got a little tickle in his throat. He's a little sick. We don't want to be spreading it around. So we have the technology to podcast from home. I'm at my pool He's at his crib. We are talking about all the amazing old Porsches uh, that I drove in Germany on this most recent trip, as well as why my three trips in four weeks to Germany made me hate American roads. We talk about potholes. We're talking about Tesla scamming their own customers, which we should be used to at this point. Uh, we talk about some great questions 
on the Patreon. Oh, and we talk about me almost having a panic attack because I had way too much. Well, not almost. Do actually having a panic attack in Germany because I had too much caffeine and I was sure that I had gotten COVID. <laughs> it's a crew show. Welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. Hi, folks. Welcome to my backyard and uh, Zach's apartment. Mm-hmm. Zach's got a little. Zach's got a little tickle in his throat. I got something. You'll hear that. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely something. Yes. Definitely. I don't know what he was doing with his Burning Man friends, but something was coating his throat. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any of them in a long time. I don't know what I did. We stayed in all weekend, but I just woke up and went, oh, that hurts. That's not good. I think as soon as you hit live, it got fucking worse. The five minutes we were on before this, holy shit. That is, are you mm-hmm. drinking some tea with honey or something? I got tea with honey. I got mushroom coffee. Like... Mushroom Sig- coffee. You're doing that? Like the four sigmatic stuff, not like the not... is that the no, I know, but like that cha it's that chaga shit. Yeah, but I looked at the package and it's basically instant coffee with <laughs> some mushrooms in it. So it's hard to tell if the chaga is giving you any kind of energy or if it's just coffee. So yeah. I'm not sure. I I a couple of people tried to sell me on that that chaga stuff and I was like, yeah, like because when I was in college, we used to slang mushrooms that was how i earned a living and we did this by grinding them up into a powder and putting them in gel caps and so now uh it took me a long time to eat any kind of mushrooms i ate so many mushrooms in college that i like couldn't eat regular mushrooms even for a like long time porcini- porcinis or something yeah 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 like the just the it was close enough yeah. where i would like gag and now i've finally grown past that and i'm actually starting to enjoy like really good mushrooms now um but the chaga stuff being like dried mushroom powder is way too close to, to the ground up mushrooms we're slanging and so i can't uh can't do it Somehow. yeah i understand that um but whatever helps your voice sounds fucking shit yep is, um, it, is it happens what were you actually doing are you doing like, anything? No, we didn't. We didn't do anything this weekend. That was uh, like we didn't stay up late. We didn't go out partying. I think we like hmm. you know cleaned up the house and went for a hike. Maybe you've got fucking black mold in the house, dude. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's come inside. Uh, what did I do last week? I mean, I'm sure I just walked past someone that sneezed, and like yeah. that's that's how this stuff happens. So who knows? I sound like Batman. I yeah. Just, <laughs> I just learned that everyone made fun of um, Christian Bale's voice in the first Batman. And so the second one, he didn't He didn't do that voice. The, yeah, the, they didn't the post. They didn't post. So yeah. everyone's like, why did you act this way? He's like, you know, I didn't. I did it like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually sounded like Alfred in, yeah. uh, in the second one. Where I, we must have read the same fucking Christopher Nolan interview or something. Uh, oh, yeah, no, it was like that. It was that tweet thread that I was about Christopher it, yeah. Nolan. Yeah, that's where I read it. Oh, that's that, funny. that All of that information flow tracks. Um yeah. But dude, on my flight to Germany for Spider RS, and I'm sorry we can't talk about Spider RS on this show. Um, I have some other things from Germany I can talk about on this show, but the embargo is August 7th, so I have to wait for Spider RS. But um, you know, I was in business class, and it was it was you know pods. It wasn't full rooms, but it was it was pods. KLM, pretty nice. But this woman behind me, dude, was coughing and sniffling the whole flight. And I was like, not happy about it. And I just, I just got such a fucking bad vibe, dude. I got, uh, and then 
the first, you know, nothing happened. Okay. The second day we were in Germany, which was the, um, the, um, the shoot, the not, no. Yeah. The second day, which was the day I actually shot the video. It was, you know, it was pretty chilly. It was like, it's been hot in Europe, but it was like cold and raining on and off all day, which was good, good practice for the top, which uh, we'll talk about in detail next week. Cause on the last show, we talked about how you actually put the top on and off uh, on this car. It's not the same as a regular car, but you know, it's the spider. So you want to drive with the top down as much as possible. And I fucking forgot a hat. I didn't bring a hat. So open air cold wind whatever and you know remember in england like we drank like just an insane amount of coffee because everywhere we went to goodwood had coffee and we were just drinking so much of it and same thing with this trip in germany like just drank a shitload of coffee and the flow of the day wasn't what i thought it would be like we 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 drove all day it was based at this sort of like eco hotel out in the middle of nowhere in these Swabian Alps. You ever heard of the Swabian Alps? Mm-hmm. The Swabian Alps are Alps in the way that the Santa Monica mountains are the Rockies. You know, <laughs> yes, it's 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 where it's it's where Andy Preuninger goes to drive on the weekends. You know what I mean? So like if you live in Stuttgart, this is where you go drive. And he wanted us to drive the car on the roads that he developed it on, that he likes. So that's why we were there. Um, But the mountains aren't that tall, it it looks like. Right. It's nice driving roads, but it ain't Switzerland. Okay. But but bottom line is we then we finished the, the drive. And I thought we were just going back to the to the hotel and spending another night and then going to Stuttgart. But no, we had to go back to the hotel at like 5 p.m., pack our stuff, and then take like an hour and a half van ride to Stuttgart. I brought a I had a big coffee for that. After having coffee at lunch, after having coffee in the morning, after having coffee at the driver change swap. Like it I it, I didn't it I didn't think about how much coffee I had had. Get to the to the Stuttgart Airport Hotel. It's now like 7 p.m. And I really want to work out. So I go try and do some cardio. And I don't know like about you, but like when I get on a machine, it's sort of an unfamiliar cardio machine, especially where the instructions are all in a different language. You never know if you're making it too easy or too hard, like relative to your machine that you're used to. Turns out I made it pretty hard. And I I could barely make it through like 30 minutes of this cardio my heart rates at like 158 you know and i'm like dripping sweat and i just like want to go back and i and i start to and and oh by the way the air conditioning in my room at this hotel is not working so it's like just stagnant in the room and i just start to feel really weird and i get this crazy anxiety then i start thinking about this lady on the plane who was coughing near me and i'm like oh god this bitch gave me fucking covid and then it it because of the caffeine it creates this cycle of anxiety and like symptoms and like heart going fast and sweaty and not really having an appetite for dinner and want to go to bed but can't and like I just texted Hannah and I was like, I might have to be like stuck in Germany. Like, I think I'm fucked right now. Like, this is really bad. And I took 15 milligrams of Ambien. 
And I was like, because this is all I had. Is that, is that a lot? I don't know what the pen that's a lot. has. I mean, okay. that's if, unless you're like a junkie. Like if I take a, if normally if I would take like five milligrams on a flight or like 10 milligrams, if I want to sleep for like 10 hours. So each pill but is five. Uh, yes. Okay. Each pill is five. So I took three. That's and a, I was that like, seems aggressive. fucking, I was like down motherfucker. Let's go down. And I was like, if, so I ultimately woke up and I was also like kind of sniffly cause I'd been outside in the cold all day, but then like sweaty and hot. And I was like, I just, I was like having like every feeling possible plus all the anxiety that I had now made myself sick. And, uh, and as it turns out, I woke up the next day and it was okay. Did not have, did not have COVID back to normal, had a massive caffeine overload combined with being outdoors in the cold, wet for 10 hours. <laughs> it was, with, 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 did you have jet lag and all that stuff too? Oh yeah. Was, plus plus a not, you know, nine hour time change. Yeah. You know, I, when jet lag hits real bad, it feels like the flu. It's like, it really, mm. I've had that real bad before where I was like, why am I warm and sweaty? And then the yeah. next day it was gone. Yeah. So, so you know, and that that was my third nine hour time change in four weeks. So it was like really, really bad, um, mm -hmm. much worse than it normally ever is. Um, so that one that was a, that was a rough one. Um, long story for a, a short a short punchline, which is that I didn't have COVID, but I almost I felt like I gave myself COVID. You it do, was you do this like twice a year. You do. Where like you you wind yourself up somehow and think you're sick, and it turns out to be something totally innocuous that didn't have any effect. Right, right. I mean that definitely does happen, and then it also happens where I really am sick and it wrecks my life for a fucking week. Yeah. Um. You got sick like a month ago. Right. No, it was a it was a while. Like when I got oh. COVID, that was like in February. It's oh. July, man. That was a while back. What day um, is it, man? What day is it? I don't even know. Uh. So I can't talk about uh the spider rs but you know porsche was also nice enough to hook up not only a tour of their secret storage facility which was fucking incredible yeah packed um, in like sardines right yeah um but it's it's race cars and it's special production cars and it's historic cars and it's test mules they're not i mean some of these things i imagine get thrown away but there's some really crazy test mules in there there was the first cayenne test mule mm -hmm. which was a mercedes ml body on a fucking on a cayenne chassis there was um some the 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 water cooled the 996 press uh mule which i put a picture of on instagram is one of the saddest looking cars you've ever seen it looks it looks fucked up um and obviously it looks that way to disguise the fried egg headlights with these sort of pontoon fenders that are made out of cardboard, but it just looks like dro so droopy. Oh, that does look bad. Um, and they let us drive uh, some cars out of the museum, some of which were significantly more special than others. I passed on the 06 Cayenne they offered us. Yeah. Isn't that the saddest looking car ever? The fucking yeah. 996 Mule? Well, they had it's <clears throat> The headlights look like Fiat spider headlights where they're too <laughs> vertical and they protrude yeah. too much. Wow. It's so weird looking. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's not even like they put like nine, nine, three headlights on it. Like they put like seventies Porsche headlights on it mm -hmm. and it looks real stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just powertrain test mule. 
Yeah, uh, I, cool I mean, though. I think yeah. Under it looks, you can kind of see that underneath the cardboard is probably a nine nine six ish body. They just put these headlight extensions on. They put these things that cover up the door handles, and they put nine nine three wheels on it, so you don't see the nine nine six wheels, which just makes it look real wonky and and fucking strange. Yeah, it looks really. It looks like it has over fenders on, but they didn't, yeah, want, they didn't get bigger wheels yet. Yeah, it's really, really weird looking. Um, but they did um go to uh go to the the previous post on uh, on the grams and you saw some the ye- the yellow car, the one. Uh, so they um they let us drive some stuff and um the stuff that we drove, some of it was incredible. So this yellow car, which you can see photos of on my Instagram is a a one of one prototype um that they built for a 964 club sport so there's there's a club sport package for the 964 RS this is not that this is a 964 Carrera club sport so it doesn't get the 9 the RS engine but it has the RS suspension and weight reduction. It's sort of in between the RS America and the actual RS. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, you you know, I really, after driving this, first off, it had like 10,000 kilometers on it. So it was basically like driving a brand new 964. Um, and it had bucket seats, light door cards, light glass, light aluminum panels. Uh, I don't know the exact weight, but it was pretty, it was pretty light. And it really made me think about how Porsche factory performance is really great because they can make certain things lightweight that would be really hard to make in the aftermarket. And it was just, it was a package that, was really fast, really responsive. The inputs were great, but also like the clutch, the brakes, the shifter were all really easy. I mean, like you could actually daily drive this car and it wouldn't be an issue. Like it's, it's not super stiff. It's not, it had, you know, it had air conditioning. Um, it was comfortable. It had headroom and leg room and, and the clutch wasn't crazy heavy. And it just, it had like 260 horsepower or so, but it felt like it was over 300. Like it just made, it made great use of the power it had. And it just was so like tight and nice. Like I I understand why people pay all that money for a 964 RS. Like that just, that just makes sense. Mm. But this thing was like, fuck me. It's 30 years old. And I could I could get in it and daily drive it now and be perfectly happy, feeling like I had one of the best cars in the world. Like just so engaging and and fun. That's impressive because um, I when I when I was there I drove cars from the museum and I drove the, I think it was the nine nine three, like RS the purple one. Uh huh. And, and it was it felt like they were on their way to you know GT three RS nine nine six. Right. But in the middle ground the nine nine three felt too heavy too stiff the steering was really heavy yeah this is this car it sounds like was that nice light feel from like the previous generations right and then, it, in the 93 they had kind of like a weird teenage year before they right. kind of got it figured it all out 
Right. The steering was heavier than other 911s, but the steering wheel was also a little smaller and it had wider front tires and that that may have been why, but it wasn't like it wasn't like oh wow, this is heavy. It was just mm. it felt it also felt very sharp. It felt like you didn't have to turn the wheel each as much going into the corner as as other ones. It was really really uh, quick, great. Um this white car was off the motherfucking chain. This car, this white car, it doesn't really look like much, but this is a 1985 uh, 3.2 Club Sport prototype. And so they ended up coming out with this car two years later in 87. This is an 85. So this has aluminum, a full aluminum body, with a carbon Kevlar front bonnet, full lightweight glass, lightweight seats, lightweight door cards. Uh, it has the uh, Carrera whale tail. And it has uh, a 3.2 engine, but with a Porsche Motorsport short shifter in it. And this car weighed 2,233 pounds. So it Whoa. was... 1,015 kilograms, and it had uh, about a 240 horsepower engine. This car was a fucking rocket. This thing was so fast. It, it was it was possibly the fastest, like, I think this was the fastest G-body car like I've ever driven, um, except for maybe like an 89 Turbo. Mm -hmm. You know, like this thing, this thing was ridiculously quick. Uh, I, I was, I was, at first I thought it was a 3.0 and I was like, what the fuck have they done here? And then I found out it was a 3.2. Okay. That makes a little more sense. Um, but it was so light. I mean, they pulled like, I don't know, five to 500 pounds out of this car. Wow. Um, and it was just it was sweet, man. And it had a 915 gearbox, but with this Porsche Motorsports short shifter, it was the best shifting 915 gearbox I've ever I've ever used. Um, but this one really hammered it home for me that that these Porsche's lightweighting projects from the 70s and 80s are just really where it's at. You know, the production version of this car in 87. To get one today, it's probably 200 grand plus. They're very expensive. They're very hard to come by. And I understand why. I mean, I, you know, I had a car two, two years newer than this um, I, that I turned into the Safari, and it just didn't feel like this. It just did not feel nearly as this thing was fucking so fast. 500, awesome. 500 pounds is a huge amount of weight to cut out of a car. And that will affect, yeah. as we know, every aspect of it breaking turning everything that is a ton yeah. of weight especially if you're starting at what 20 you're starting at 28 and you're going to 22 mm -hmm. and that's a huge huge difference it's like 20 percent. i mean that's that's a lot you know and it's not and they're and they're cutting it from all over the car you know and they're cutting it from the high points of the car so you know my car had a sunroof it had power leather seats it had you know, steel panels. And this car has no sunroof, Kevlar panels, light glass. So all of the weight is cut from the top of the car. Um, 
And they gave us this really nice test loop to drive it on, which obviously they got from the engineers. Cause as we're driving, each of these cars is like a 45 minute loop. It's probably 50 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, really nice variety of windy roads and stuff. We went out, we started from this, this hotel in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and I kept seeing prototypes. I saw like five electric Cayenne prototypes, two electric Macan prototypes. There was a Tycon with a giant GT3 RS wing on it. Like there's almost definitely a Tycon GT coming. Uh, there was the nine, new 992.2 cab uh, we saw running around. So like this was the roads that all the Porsche guys were using. But that that club sport was fucking epic. And like... I've I've now after the 964 and that car I've now on my list for eventually is own a factory lightweight you know 964 or G body car because I don't I don't think that that is replicable in the aftermarket folks we got to take a quick break from the action for game time game time's awesome it's straight up it's awesome i wanted to buy some wmba tickets for my wife's birthday and i found them on game time no problemo i got the best seats literally courtside seats pretty last minute too and game time really hooked it up it was a superior uh, buying experience i was really really into it uh the app was easy uh, it was easy to see where on the court the seats were. They got all kinds of great deals, whether it's music, sports, comedy, theater, you name it, Game Time has got it. You don't have to worry about the idea of buying the tickets. You can just worry about the fun you're going to have at the event you're going to see. Game Time's got flash deals. They've got last-minute ticket sales. It's really easy to find the ticket for any kind of event in your area. They got the stage and uh, court and field view, so you can see what your view is going to look like from where your tickets are. And they offer the lowest price guarantee, event cancellation protection, even job loss protection. If you lose your job, your financial situation changes, you can actually get your money back from game time. It's the place for last minute ticket deals so you never have to plan for months in advance. They've got ticket deals right up until the day of the event for football, for baseball, basketball, etc. Comedy, theater, you name it. And if you find tickets in the same section and row for less money somewhere else, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. So snag your tickets for the game without stress on game time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, use code SMOKINGTIRE for $20 off your first purchase. Terms do apply, but just create an account and redeem code SMOKINGTIRE for $20 off your first purchase. Download Game Time today, last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. I just I just don't think that without a factory doing it, that, it, that it's possible to get it. I mean, short of you know, singer or Gunther and you're talking half a million bucks, but, but it, but the club sport, like you don't, the club sport was as fun to drive as the Gunther, you know, wow. and it had half, and it had half the power. Yeah. I mean, you the weight, the weight removal of the roof is really challenging. Uh, there are some people have installed carbon fiber roofs on E46 M3s to get rid of their, yeah. sun, their sunroof, but it yeah. is serious surgery 
You know, yeah. like, so that's what you're talking about is <clears throat> removing and replacing an entire roof is yeah. serious surgery. Yeah. That'd be yeah. hard to replicate. So that was amazing. And then um, I drove, go back to the, to the photos. I drove the a super 90, 1963, 356, no seatbelts, which uh, you want to think about every input. Think about the fact that you do not have a fucking seatbelt. This little red car drove it in a pissing downpour. Yikes. And delightful i mean totally get it i've driven a couple 356s this one was probably the best one i've driven just makes a lot of sense i mean you just you drive something like this and you wonder why almost anything else you've driven from the late 50s or early 60s is just shit (laughs) compared to this like the car handles really well drives really predictable this one had disc brakes this the c this is a c you know they had a b and c the c's got disc brakes so the brakes were really good really easy to heel toe um you know 90 horsepower but fucking 1800 pounds or something have you Um, driven have you driven a ferrari or something else of that cost from this year or era that'd be a fun not yeah no, I drove like a couple like later 60s Ferraris, but never something from the 50s. Um, my understanding is they don't drive as good. I mean, the engines are good, but from what I gather, they don't they don't drive as nice as these. It just again, lightness and inputs. They just they valued that so mm-hmm. much. I mean, these cars were winning Le Mans with like half the horsepower of their competitors. Um and you also understand why people who own these and buy these can drive them so much. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no reason you couldn't, you know, this, this car's old as shit, but I'm out there with modern traffic going a modern speed. Um, KC Colwell from Road and Track, you know, we after we we were done doing these loops, we had to drive all the cars back to Stuttgart in on the Autobahn in modern traffic. Um, and KC Colwell drove this one back and hit like 120 miles an hour. Whoa. You know, in a car with 90 horsepower. I mean, it yeah, just wow. makes it just makes the most use of it. There, This was on a de-restricted section, by the way. Someone else drove the 959 back to Stuttgart and apparently went 170 miles an hour. Just like, Whoa. <laughs> fucking move in a, it. In a very rare, expensive car, but I guess. Yeah. To drive the 959, you have to not think about the fact that it's $2 million. And... um. And actually, that's surprisingly easy, you know, because once you're in it, um, in a lot of ways, it feels just like a 911. You know, it's um, don't get me wrong. The 959 and I have I made a video with the 959. It was it, I didn't have a lot of time with it. It's not going to be the the best produced video that we've ever made. Um, Porsche is getting did. What Porsche actually very kindly offered to go out and get some extra B-roll, some car-to-car and some drive-bys of this, because I only had an hour by myself with this car. Um, I had I had an I had a little more. I had an hour transit because I drove it from Stuttgart to the home base, which was about an hour, and then I had another hour once we were there. So I got more nine five nine seat time than anybody else. But but even that is not really enough to make. A- video so porsche agreed to go back and get some drive-bys and some car to car to fill it out which was very nice of them um but this car 
uh, the 959 is amazing because it it really previews where cars were going, turbocharging, refinement, insulation. Mm-hmm. Um, all-wheel and drive, was, adjustable suspension. All-wheel drive, yeah, adaptive stuff. Uh, and and in some in a lot of ways you know it feels there's no you get in this and you go this is this is not a 40 year old car it just doesn't feel like a 40 year old car in how it in how it drives but in other ways um it when you're kind of driving it and get used to it 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 feels for better or worse like a regular 911 you know when you're just cruising along and that can be good or that can be bad. You know, if you spend $2 million on one, it might, you might not be happy that it feels sort of like a regular 911 a bunch mm-hmm. of the time um, compared to a Countach or a Testarossa that, that you, you're never confused about what you're driving. Um, on the other hand, it has some very crucial differences from the 911 that if you you know, you don't get to a 959 by accident. You know, you, nobody stumbles into owning one of these things. It's that's the end of the 911 road, right? And so if you know a lot about 911s, by the time you get to a 959, chances are you can appreciate these subtle differences. The shaved rain gutters and the aerodynamics of the of the car in general make it shock like Rolls-Royce quiet on the highway. Wow. 100 miles an hour, top gear just sailing down the autobahn and it's silent in there. And that's that was really really amazing and very different from the other sort of lightweight special type cars. Um sequential turbos. Uh most people are well aware that the 911 is turbocharged. Most people, I don't know about most people, I don't want to overgeneralize, but but most people who think about a turbo 911 either think about the old school single turbo or the current and, and 993 and newer twin turbo. Well, the 959 is a sequential turbo, which a lot of uh, people uh, like the RX-7 and the, and the Supras were doing in the early 90s, and Porsche was doing it first. Um, it's one turbo and then the other. And so when you when you roll into the power, you've got a small turbo that comes in from about 2,000 RPM to about 4,000 RPM. It then dies off a little bit. There's a little torque dip. And then at five, the second turbo comes in, which is much larger. And it's like a fucking afterburner has been lit. When you hit the second turbo uh, on this car, it is ridiculously fast, uh, even by the standards of a modern car. I mean, this thing is, uh, it's about 3,000 pounds and it's 450 horsepower. It goes like a motherfucker. And um, second gear, because, uh, you know, it's it, it's got, so it's, you know, it's got that G gear, right? The Galanda gear. So it's a six-speed gearbox. But rather than one, two, three, four, five, six, it's G one, two, three, four, five. And the reason they did this is not because the G is actually a crawl gear. That's how they market it. Oh, it's got a low, like a, almost like a low range crawl gear It's for the Dakar rally hmm. motorsport. That's not really why they did it. Why they really did it was at the time, 
I believe it was Switzerland or maybe Austria, had a very strict sound test where you had to be second gear, full throttle, a certain speed, and and you had to be below a sound threshold. So so they just made third. They found a way to make third gear second gear. Right. So if you drive it around just using the G gear as first, it feels like the gear ratios of a modern car. If you drive around using actual labeled one as first, it feels like it has a much longer longer first gear, and you have to ride the clutch a little bit. And so um, you can really drive it like a six speed and just kind of ignore the numbers on the shifter. Um, but that's an amazing loophole. It is an amazing that's loophole funny. and it's very creative. And so when you put it in quote second, which is really third and you get into the second turbo on third or fourth gear, the way this car picks up steam is fucking shockingly quick. It's just, it just goes so fast. And the difference between the first turbo and the second turbo, especially because there's that little dip in the middle, is amazing. And, you know, you could get, you could get used to it really fast. I mean, the mm-hmm. 959 would be a great car to, to drive all over the country to put a lot of miles on. It's really expensive to maintain these cars. Yeah. The, the fucking maintenance is real scary. So you got to be a super boss to own one of them. But um, it, it feels much different from every other 911. Certainly what the, what the G-Body 930 Turbo felt like at the time. This is a wildly different car. Um, actually, closest comparison would be a Skyline, R32 Skyline, mm, where, yeah. you, you know, same type of afterburner levels of power delivery, smoothness, um, and you drive it and go, this can't be from the late 80s. This must, this must have been newer you know um the skyline is even more impressive because it was so much more affordable and delivering you know similar levels of performance yeah Yeah. um the 959 is faster than a skyline but it's it's definitely that same vibe of you can't believe you you can't reconcile the performance and the refinement with the era because Mm -hmm. it's just so much better you know, it makes my Countach feel like a truck. Um, and it was soft. It was it was really, compared to the 964, lightweight, compared to the Club Sport, this thing was really soft. It was And it was a comfort version of the car, not a sport version, but it was set up, it's set up for long range. It's set up for touring. Um, it's set up to, 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 to drive across the country at 150 miles an hour and be ready to go to dinner, you know, when you get to the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, very that's very neat yeah uh i looked up the slippery going back to the quietness the, the drag coefficient of this car is 0. 0.31 which yeah. is and uh the drag coefficient of a rolls royce phantom is 0. 0.38 yeah so no wonder it's so quiet that's really quiet. it was really really quiet and that that was when i got on the highway and i stuck it at 100 a de-restricted autobahn um, I went quicker than that. I didn't do 170. Um, um, but uh, uh, that that really stood out, you know, because a rear engine car is already quieter than a front engine car. Mm-hmm. You don't have those exhaust gases that are passing underneath you. And then a turbo car is going to be quieter than an NA car. And then um, 
The 959, although the body panels are made of carbon Kevlar, it's a full interior car. It has it had the extended leather. It had it, it was this was a car that was set up to be comfortable. Um, it wasn't set up to to set lap records. So the the refinement was just was really staggering. That was very impressive. But like the video's cool. I got to go quick. I'm actually it's I'm actually driving it in the wet. Um, and I get to I get to go pretty quick. Um uh not all all not every mounted shot matches the road I did the in-car on because you know it's it's very hard to make videos in an unfamiliar location because you want to gather footage, but you just you don't have the the convenience of shooting it all on the same stretch of road. I had to shoot the mounted shots in transit. I had to make use of the fact that I got more seat time than anybody else by getting footage while I was doing it. So, and, uh, and so um, not every, you know, the, the road I did the in-car on, which you'll see, like there's no center stripe. It's like a really remote road. And I had to drive a bunch of the mounted shots. There's a center stripe. And like, it's just, it's not a perfect video from production standpoint, but still you get, get to have a fucking go in a factory, you know, never sold to the public nine, five, nine, like, yeah, video, video is a, is is in order mm -hmm, um, definitely and those and then i drove i drove this 944 turbo which was very rare because it was one of a very small number of, of turbo convertibles in the u.s you couldn't get the turbo as a convertible uh in europe you could but they only made 500 of them honestly like i know there's people that love the transaxle um 944s and 928s they don't do shit for me i mean they're they're well made they have you know they have nice balance you know in a corner but besides that they're just you know porsche's porsche is so great because they do a thing like the like a rear engine or a rear mid-engine car and they refine and refine and refine and refine and refine and when they really put their best behind it, it's an incredible experience that's unique and unavailable elsewhere. A front engine rear drive car, you can get that elsewhere. Um, and, and this car, although is very beautiful in maritime blue, um, and although there's nothing wrong with a 944 turbo, if you drive a great 911 or, or a 959, or a great Cayman, or a great Boxster, and then you drive this, it's just another old sports car. You know, I, I've never been in love with these. They offer the, the performance of a great Miata or an 86, but they cost a whole lot more money to maintain. You know, the fact that it's a turbo, it doesn't really feel very fast. It's like 240 horsepower, you know, and especially as a convertible, it was probably 3,200 pounds. Um, not, not an impressive power to weight. The brakes were only okay. The shifter was only okay. Yes. Good balance in, in corners, but, but not, not mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Um, nice to get to have a little go in, in anything that's very rare like this. Um, Do you think, yeah. So today, you know, if you drive a Panamera, it's a front engine car, it's doing something that Mercedes has done for a long time, BMW has right. done for a long time, which is what this 944 was doing. But I feel like the Panamera 
<clears throat> is very distinct in how it feels, not just like interior quality, but they really, it seems like they honed in on handling and feedback and all that stuff. Does this feel like they hadn't figured that out yet? So they just kind of made a comfortable front engine touring car? No, they had figured it out. Com compared to what other people were selling in the 80s, this was a pretty good car. You know, compared to a C4 Corvette. Remember, this is pre-Miata. You know, so this is an 89 and the Miata came out in 90. So if you look at it in its in historical context, pretty good car. Same for the 928. In historical context, pretty good car. If you look at the the front engine rear drive cars of the of the middle 80s, it's a pretty good car. And there's nothing objectively wrong with it. It's just that now, 30 years later, a lot of other companies have figured out how to make good balanced front engine rear drive cars. And these cars being old Porsches are very expensive to maintain. And to me, the driving experience does not justify the maintenance cost mm -hmm. of these cars. Uh, they're, they're just, they're, if you look at them in a lens of history, Okay, yeah, but the the farther we get from the mid 1980s, the less it matters how it compares to other 1980s sports cars because you're not just cross shopping it with what's available then. Mm -hmm. You're cross shopping it as a a weekend toy collectible with everything that's been available since. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, so I, I just I'll, I'll give him this. It was comfortable. Uh, it was very pretty in this color. And, uh, although we didn't take the top down because it was raining most of the day, it was probably a nice little cruiser, you know, that would be, um, you know, one of those cars that if you wanted a big Porsche collection, uh, 944 turbo cab would be a great thing to add to it because it's rare, uh, certainly in a PTS color, very rare. And uh, it would make an, a good part of a well-rounded Porsche collection. My mm -hmm. buddy Todd Blue would go fucking ape shit for this car, who buys all blue cars. Because if your name is fucking Blue and you're rich, that's what you do. <laughs> um, but uh, just, you know, to me, not not a special driving experience. Considering this car would probably cost you thirty-five or forty grand minimum to buy a, a decent one. And then, I don't know, a few thousand a year for sure to maintain it as well. Mm -hmm. So just yeah. the experience doesn't justify it. I'd rather have, for that kind of money, I'd rather have a great, and I mean great, like 1995 Corvette ZR1. Mm. Which, oh, yeah, not it, built as well, but way quicker, you know. Yeah, and I think it feels more special. Whereas, yeah. like, the special Porsches are 911s for the most part. Yeah. That's what they do. The, the Corvette ZR1, like, this is what Chevy did. Whereas this is, like, I don't know. It, they, they needed to build something for that market segment, but it's not their specialty. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go into a McDonald's and order the salad, exactly. even if it was an okay salad. You should, you should get, you should go to the restaurant that does the, the one thing really well, and then you should eat that thing. Yeah, I got a chicken sandwich at a pastrami place once, and it was terrible. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's, "That's my fault. That's my fault." Yeah, yeah. Um, but man, 
in general, like European roads make me really annoyed at America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, between between Monaco, our trip to England, this trip to Germany, it makes me so annoyed at America. Well, you can <laughs> great segue because as I told you before the show, someone emailed me or DM'd me on Instagram. This gentleman is a uh, road inspector engineer, so he shows uh, up. It. He shows up when the road has been built or repaired, whatever. He's on the East Coast, not in California, but um, and uh, and he makes sure things were done correctly. And he was listening to our podcast once once the repair has been done. Yeah, or sometimes during okay. to see if they're doing the process uh-huh. right. And this is going to be rough. Um, but he listened to our show last week where we were talking about pothole filling in California, Los Angeles, and how terrible it seems. And I, I think one of us asked, like, is this just how it's done? Is there something about, you know, German road repair that's different than our road repair? Like, is it earthquakes? And he said, and a lot of these are going to be quotes, it is always human error. Uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it is the contractor cutting corners. Most times it's laziness on the worker. And then he sure. laid out the proper way to fill a pothole, which there are instructions. Everyone gets these instructions. It's to cut a square, sweep or blow out debris, lay down a tack coat, wait for that to s- wait for that to fill, then mix it. Then you either seal the edges with a rubber agent or another tack coat. He says, I have never seen it done that way. Uh, I tell the workers to do it properly. They tell me they've been doing it this other way all their lives, and I don't know what I'm talking about, and it becomes a huge issue. And then the area engineer just tells me, let them do whatever they want to do. Uh, He says, the United States has superior resources to any other nation when it comes to road building. We have the best material tech, road design, collected data. We have everything except workers who give a fuck about the quality (laughs) of the work that they produce. And we taxpayers pay for a saw cut, cleaned, moisture free pothole repair. But usually someone just shows up with a truck with a bucket of uh, hot patch asphalt and a torch. And and he and he sent me like a screen grab of of the instructions. Here's how it's laid out where he lives, how you're supposed to repair a pothole. And he's just and he said, I've never seen it done that way. That tracks (laughs) that fucking tracks. But that sucks because. You know, taxpayers are paying the money for it to be done correctly. We have engineers that know how it's supposed to be done and people who are getting paid to be there anyway. So I can only imagine, you know, because so much. I wonder, you think they get paid by the whole? I can't imagine they do. They, I mean, if you're if you're a government employee or a government contractor that's in charge of doing this, you must be paid either salary or hourly. I can't imagine you're paid per hole. It's not a gig. But so, like, what's the downside to doing it right? Well, a lot of road work is not a government entity. It is a contractor that kind of yes. appears like a government entity, but they're contracted. So, like any business, if they want to reduce their costs, then they can go, well, if we pull out some of the material costs from this whole repair mm-hmm, and we just use mm-hmm, this thing, mm-hmm. then we are spending less and making the same. That's right. I mean, that's a theory. I don't know. Maybe if, if this gentleman yeah. hears this, he can reply why people cut corners because – I mean that – yeah. Money sounds like there. a good reason. I mean, look, money and laziness are both equally valid reasons mm-hmm. for not doing a good job. Yeah, and who knows? So, there could be – there could be timeline pressure where they're like, hey, we need to get this whole road repaired in a month. And yeah. they go, well, we can't do the whole road in a month correctly if we do it like this. 
I don't know who knows. I bet there's a bunch of different things, but it sucks that we are so close. And yet we just, the taxpayers pay the money. Our cars get damaged by these poor road repairs. And, yeah. you know, we foot, we foot the bill on both ends. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I said to Andy Preuninger, um, this is gonna, this is gonna get in the, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a driving impression, but I said to Andy on the, on the spider drive, you know, I said, I said like, Oh God, your roads, your roads are just like so fucking good here. Like even the like not great roads are still like pretty decent, you know? And, uh, and, and, and he was, I think he, he was sort of surprised. I don't know how much driving he does in America. I know he comes here from time to time, but it's such a, a stark change to come home from Germany and not, and drive on California. And I'm not talking about the canyons. I'm talking about like just the everyday fucking roads. It's just so bumpy and shitty and, and, and uh, poorly maintained. Um, and also our system of traffic lights rather than roundabouts is fucking mm-hmm. so uncivilized and dumb. When we were in England, we drove, we drove across a third of the country and I don't think we came to a stop. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, and not just on high on highways or motorways as they call, I mean, we, you can drive really far on a major thoroughfare road that has stores, houses, businesses mm-hmm. on it without hitting a, a light. Like you just, it just moves. It's, it's, it's just such an obvious way to reduce time that you're just sitting. I mean, I wonder, we need to research the history. Like why did, why did Europe go with the roundabout Did that spring from their wagon trail commerce or something like that? Or was it just, they thought it was a better way. And then someone in the United States, a different, you know, different traffic engineer, whatever was like, "Mm, I have this other theory. Let's go with lights instead. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect it's something to do with our urban to suburban sprawl versus their connecting villages uh, philosophy of road building. I mean, there's mm. definitely like lights in London. You know, if you go to, if you go into a major city in Europe within the city, there are lights. It's not, it's not all roundabouts in the city similar to our cities but if you go to our suburbs we have taken that that philosophy to the suburbs whereas their road system which connects smaller villages uh it just it and is designed uh for that purpose they they just don't have nearly as many lights so you just don't have to be stopped Wow. I was trying to Google the history really quick, but uh, a study by Kansas State University found that average delays were 65% less at roundabouts than at signalized intersections. Yeah. That is, And, and not just the delay, the time delays, the stress. Because remember, sometimes in, in England, we would approach a roundabout and there would be a backup there, 15, mm-hmm. 20 cars at some of the bigger ones. And Yes, there would be cars waiting, but typically, you know, you'd put the car in first gear and you'd sort of move, you'd be moving forward at five miles an hour. You're not just sitting there stopped for three minutes and then you move a hundred yards and you're stopped again for three minutes. You know, it's, it's, 
it it does keep moving even when it slows down a lot, which I think is less stressful on the driver. This is interesting. I found a post by an actual traffic department of transportation engineer. Um, mm. This someone asked them why we haven't changed to roundabouts, and it seems like we're kind of stuck at this point because. Uh, it takes a lot of land. This is quote: it takes a lot of land to build a roundabout, the cost of which is not included in the cost above. So, in many cases, you'd have to knock down businesses, apartment buildings, other things to install right. a roundabout. Yeah. So it's. Well, we're not. We're also not making that choice when we build new. Yeah, true. New roads. It's not. You know, I I understand when something is. I don't necessarily agree that we should not make it a priority. I think we should, but I understand. But the fact is, we're not making that choice for brand new roads either. Yeah, um, so someone said that we're in areas with heavy traffic, signals are better because a roundabout could just end up with a gridlock situation. Like there's too many cars coming in at once to have everyone just obey the right of way. Um, you know, just depends on what number is required to to right. to be heavy traffic. Right. Right. Um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the Patreon questions, of which we have a bunch, um, the couple of things. Um, well, I think we'll talk about. I'm, I've got a Fisker Ocean. Believe it or not, I they, know. I they saw. Brought, they brought me an actual Fisker Ocean, uh, a running driving car. Um, but I've only had it for one day. And so I don't necessarily want to get into it till maybe, maybe the, if we do a show at the end of this week, once I've had it, uh, for, for a few days, we can, we can talk about it once I've driven it more, but it is a very real car. Looks like that. Um, uh, and the one thing that, that, that surprised me about it was it was actually, uh, quite a bit less expensive than I thought it would be. The one they gave me is fully loaded, every option, and it's sixty-eight thousand bucks, which is in the wheelhouse of a Mach E, an Ionic Five, a Kia EV6, a Model Y. It's not Lotus Elettra, you know. It's not exotic. It's not an exotic car. It's not a. It's not a. It's not even. It's not even really a luxury car. I mean, I suppose it. I suppose it. It is uh, $68,000 is a, is a semi-luxury car, um, but it's, it, it is not, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not exotic. I, I thought, I, I thought before they showed up, it was going to, they're going to tell me this thing was 110 grand or something, but 68 grand fully loaded is not bad. Um, and it does have some really neat design features. Uh, and it does have some very strange quirks, some of which I discovered in the first three miles of driving. Um, so if uh, if people have questions, if there's things they want to know about the Fisker Ocean, uh, we will have a video. If Zach is not well uh, enough to come out on Wednesday, if he's actually sick, I'll shoot it myself. Fine. But there will be a video on this um, interesting, interesting car i guess you can call it a startup right because it's sort of i mean they had a car yeah uh before but then they went away for a while and now they're back and it, it had a very startup-y vibe 
<laughs> the way they dropped the car off with two PR people and two techs on a Sunday <laughs> has had a real startup y vibe. Well, that's what like Lucid, when we drove that up in the canyons, they showed up with the techs. Extra cars. They extra showed cars. up with extra cars for sure. So um, and actually I I'm pretty sure it was dropped off by Heinrich Fisker's daughter. Um, I don't want to like say her name, but her last name was fucking Fisker. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's something to it, but, um, anyway, uh, it's, it's the base price of this thing is under 40,000 bucks. They've got the, the rear wheel drive short range version of it is, is under is 30, 38 grand. So it's actually by EV standards, it's, it's, pretty fucking affordable yeah it uh, is um so so that'll that'll be interesting um but speaking of evs i assume everyone has read about the tesla range scam which is um let's just say not surprising at all um we have been talking for years about the fact that uh teslas never seem to hit their at range estimates whereas many other manufacturers are either estimating pretty conservatively and they beat their range estimates or they're accurate. Um, and Zach's got an article up from Electrek, but it was, it was um, reported across all mainstream mm -hmm. car media, um, basically saying that these cars are algorithmically programmed to show an optimistic number on the dash for their range in the top 50% of the battery. And then once it gets below 50%, as it gets closer and closer to zero, that range number gets more accurate because even when you're being shitty about your range estimate, you don't want people to be stranded. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but the alleged complaint is that uh, top management thought that it would it would make people feel really good to see a big number on the dash when they charged all the way up or more, more importantly, when they collected their car new from the, from delivery to see, Oh, 350 on the dash or 400 on the dash. Um, right. Cause then when, as you're driving, you're not really noticing the, it dropping that quickly or as quickly as it is. And by the time you get to the half charge or, or a quarter, you just go, Oh, well maybe I drove too fast or maybe i was using the ac yeah, there, or whatever there's like, a lot of like enough. plausible deniability your mm -hmm. behaviors could affect it and most people aren't going to sit there with the cruise control at 58 miles an hour you know hypermiling it's now some do and they're not hitting the range either and then what's even crazier is that apparently employees in the call centers and the service centers were instructed to divert these complaints not accept these cars in for service calls because people rightly so thought there was something wrong with their cars. I thought I was going to get 360 miles of range. I'm getting 250. Mm -hmm. There must be something wrong with the car. And so they would have this, what they called a diversion team to cancel service appointments that were related to range. Um, and then the story goes even further to say that if the remote diagnostics found other problems, they would not tell the customers about other problems. So it was a oh, wow. systematic fleecing of the customers. Um, and I mean, 
there are people, and I don't think the people are reasonable, but they say that I, I shit on Elon Musk and I shit on Tesla in a way that is not deserved. And then stories like this come out that pretty much back up the stuff that we've been saying for years, that these cars do not do the things that they are advertised to do, and that many in the media give them credit for the statements they make rather than the actions they take, and that um, this company has been valued way, way over any kind of normal metrics of valuation based in no small part to these pronouncements and statements that when truly independently verified do not hold up to scrutiny. Uh, yeah. How, how were they able to get an EPA approved range number that was, you know, very high. So what what we've been saying in the past is still true. There there are multiple ways to do the EPA range testing. One of the ways, the way a lot of people do it, is by doing the exact EPA cycle. That's how almost everybody does it, which results in why almost everybody else has reasonably accurate range estimates. But there are other ways. Um, to 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 do the testing and i don't know the exact methodologies but there's a uh, uh there's additional testing that you can do yourself that accounts for other ranges other other types of conditions outside the thing and and other automakers do have the choice to use the same testing methodology that tesla has but they just don't because even though automakers can be shitty in other ways they're not being shitty in this way um so they're uh uh right there on the story the paragraph above that photo uh designed the range meters in their cars to do does it do <clears throat> Tesla has consistently designed the range meters to deliver aggressive rather than conservative estimates. Mm. Um, uh, uh, okay, go keep going down. It, I for, it doesn't say. Um, I don't want to say. Oh, there we go. Go paragraph below the bold. EV makers have a choice in how to calculate a model's range. They can use a standard EPA formula that converts fuel economy results from city and highway driving to calculate a range fig figure, or automakers can conduct additional tests to come up with their own range estimate. The only reason to conduct more tests is to generate a more favorable estimate. Tesla conducts additional tests on all of its models. By contrast, other automakers continue to rely on the EPA's formula that generally produces more conservative estimates. So it's, it's on the one hand, the EPA and the governing body has offered multiple options. So you don't, you know, okay, if they say three, here's three choices and one delivers optimistic results and one delivers conservative results, you can't entirely blame Tesla for taking a road that is offered to them. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. Is, would it, is it what I would do? No. But <laughs> to, to then program your gauge in a systematic way that, that backs up sort of misleading results and to then 
divert and lie to your customers about what you've done. Now that's fucking shady. And well, gross. yeah, and said so the diversion team, like when they would, when they were able to sway a customer to, or just cancel an appointment, they were like muting the phone and hitting alarms, and and they're just very excited because each each cancellation saves Tesla a thousand dollars. So it was just, sure. it was like a weird stock trading office where it's like, yes, we got them yeah, to the, back out the of the diversion team boiler room. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's range room. Yeah. And so, that's so that's one. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and and it's sort of like what we've sort of suspected because we we've been well aware that Teslas don't hit their range estimates. They just don't. And and so if you quote a range estimate rather than the actual results delivered from an Edmonds or from Kyle Connor at, uh, uh, or from any of the people that really do the range testing, you know, but it shouldn't be the consumer's fault for not doing all that research. You know, right. I, I can't, yeah. I cannot, it, I understand why when the EPA sets a test and everyone has to do the same test, we end up in the same place we've ended up with turbocharged gasoline engines, which are great at the EPA test. Mm -hmm. But when you drive a Canyon road using the rev range, using the throttle, or you drive in Ford's case, the EcoBoost twin turbo V6 versus the five liter V8 and the F-150, real world range, or real world, excuse me, fuel economy, it comes out to kind of the same outside of that test. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the EPA having some flexibility in the test because it does potentially prevent automakers from gaming the test. But but unfortunately, what they have offered has allowed Tesla to game it in another way. I mean, you know, no one I don't think anyone would suspect a company would, you know, uh, put an algorithm in their gauge uh, calculator on the screen in front of every driver that is going, oh, it multiplied by one point one. Yeah. Know? I mean, that's kind of like what it's doing. Um, it's very, it's really shameful. I mean, it's not that different from Dieselgate. Right. It's it's not it's well, I not Dieselgate like, was they they knew how the test worked. Right. And then they could change the the engine calibration when it sensed it was undergoing that test. I think the Dieselgate is a little different because it sorry, the testing side of it is similar. But now you also have a readout program. It's right. like with when 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 the Twatara tried to go, you know, set the new speed record and right. were, and the and the detectives did all the work and they discovered that the GPS speed calculator was set to like 1.2 for whatever right. reason. They, yeah. they figured out, they went, oh, for some reason, this is multiplying the speed by 1.2. That's what right. No, the, 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 like. actual, the actual functionality of the Dieselgate scam versus this is different. But, but with Dieselgate, the reason that it was discovered is because an independent lab, not the EPA, independent lab went – how come Volkswagen and their engines can make this much power and be as fuel efficient as they are and produce as few emissions as they're producing? What have they done? Because no one else can do this. And let's figure out what their secret is. That's, mm. how, that's what it was. So with this Tesla thing, it's, well, how is the car so fast and offer so much range for this size battery? Well, because it's not. 
it's just it's it's lying to you mm, right um if it's too but, good to be true it probably is yeah so that's why now let's let's balance it out fair and let's fair and balance this bitch tesla has done something that is very funny have you seen the indian reservation thing no so you know tesla in many places can't have showrooms you need a you need a dealership right franchise dealership laws franchise dealership laws fucking suck and not that you shouldn't be able to have dealerships if that's what you want but i don't think they should be forced to have dealerships right you should be able to sell direct to consumer if that's your business model and and what tesla has done which is very funny to me has gone, has gone on to Native American tribal land, aka Indian reservations, in order to get around these franchise laws because laws don't apply there. And that to me wow. is fucking funny. So imagine you're going to the casino to, to Mohegan Sun or to Morongo, and there's your fucking Tesla store. And there's a Tesla dealership. Wow. Isn't that hilarious? That's like, uh, what's the guy who got arrested for the payday loan shit? He was in Dirty Money. Oh, yeah, Tucker, Scott Tucker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they based their business on native land because it's the only place they could get away with it for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, just really, really fun. That's, that's, that to me is funny. Like, because in that, in that case, you're not, in that case, it's almost like righteous scamming. You know, like you're not, you're not scamming your, your customers. You're not, you're not scamming other people on the road with your fake self-driving software and putting me in danger on my motorcycle. You're not, you're not scamming your customers with range. You're, you're, you're sticking it to a system that is fundamentally against new car business in general and, uh, and against direct to consumer and and that the dealer lobby is pretty fucked up and has a lot of power over how cars are sold in this country and in my opinion they shouldn't and so this is actually a very funny uh loophole to get around this shit yeah so uh, the article says that in connecticut uh tesla lucid and rivian were all trying to lobby to change the connecticut i think franchise laws and because mm-hmm. they couldn't tesla said all right we'll just open a showroom in uh the own indian nation it's at Mohegan, which is really oh, funny. Mohegan, uh, yeah. yeah, that's where we uh, in what when we lived in in Greenwich, Connecticut, back in the day, we used to go gamble and shit up there. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's very very uh, funny. So so points against for scamming their customers. Points for for scamming the franchise dealer system. Mm. Fair and balanced, baby. <laughs> um okay let's do a few uh patreon questions and let me pull it up i don't want to hurt zach's voice so i will read some of them on my telephono uh tony rodri of course if you want to get in our q a patreon.com slash the smoking tire podcast get an ad free listening experience ask us questions for the live show and also only patrons will have first access to my TST notice collab watch only a hundred units. The order books will be open this month. I will send the patrons the email first. Um, 
Tony Rodriguez Salgado says, is there a place in California where you can experience unlimited track sessions without track day traffic, uh, private racetrack country club? Absolutely. Thermal club, Palm Springs. That's, that is a private racetrack country club and members can get out there all day, every day. Uh, Lucas wants to know about spider RS versus demand spider that is uh, embargoed and we'll have to wait uh, until after that. Um, uh, Dave Coochie wants me to do more cooking. Now that I'm settled into my new house and kitchen, will we get a Patreon exclusive smoking fryer? Uh, we could do some cooking content on Patreon. That could be interesting. Yeah. Is that what pe do people want? Do people want cooking videos? Uh, maybe. I don't know. We could just make one and see what the response is like. Yeah. Um, Kyle as wants me to to help choose a motorcycle but the three choices that he lists the suzuki gs xs 1000 gt yamaha tracer 9 gt plus and kawasaki ninja 1000 sx i've never ridden any of them so i have abs i'd love to help you but i have absolutely no idea if anyone in the in the patreon comments has ridden any of those bikes maybe follow up on the comments there and uh help kyle out i don't uh, i don't know Random, uh, Dustin says, uh, random thing I learned relating to fashion edition vehicles like the Eddie Bauer Explorers, etc. AMC had a Levi's edition gremlin in 1973 with a denim interior. I remember that thing, and it was fucking cool, actually. The denim yeah. interior was dope. It actually is. Look at that. Look at that paint. It's like almost like a slightly darker version of Ford's Grabber Blue. Well, it's kind of like Porsche's Miami Blue. It's got a hint of purple in it. Where's the interior? Um, I don't know. Um, can you can we, Is there a photo in the? Oh, there's no, no interior photo. No interior photo. It's fucking denim. I mean, it's yeah. blue jeans. It is. It is pretty cool. Does Jay um, Leto have one? He. Sh I mean, he should. I don't know, but he really should. Um, that is very neat. Uh, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> Dre in Houston says, "I'm a huge car enthusiast. Obviously, since I'm here, but I'm also an aviation nerd." Uh, I have one K status with United and I'm sure you guys have whatever the equivalent is with Delta. That's true. Diamond baby diamond status. I have, I have over a million miles on, on, uh, on my Delta account right now. And I'm almost that that's like what they call MQMs, which is like uh, the miles that you can use to like buy flights and shit. Mm -hmm. But I have 770,000 flown miles and uh, you get some kind of permanent lifetime status when you get to a million flown miles. Whoa. So uh, anyway, Dre's question is, with the amount of travel you all do, is there any amount of enthusiasm or interest in aviation or is it an arduous means to an end? I have tried to care because so many of our friends in this industry, like Sam Smith and JF Mutual and Camden Thrasher, like they love planes, even commercial planes. They can walk up to the plane and go, oh, we're on the seven six seven da, 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 da. and i just can't care i just can't bring my i just i respect the engineering marvel that is commercial flight but i just do not care it's like a bus for me I, yeah it's very, i it's agree a very impressive bus yeah i i about if we're talking about commercial aviation i don't really care that much i think i mean there are some planes i like flying on more than others very true um 
And um, I really like seven eight sevens. I really like seven four sevens. I really like uh, Airbus A three eighties. If we're talking about international travel, um, and I, I've never booked or not booked a flight based on the type of aircraft it was on. Um, but it's there's some a little bit of nerdery to be found there. I mean, I I, I would love to find the time and energy to get into private aviation. I mean, not like Gulf streams. I mean, like flying a little propeller plane around because the people that I know who do it seem to enjoy it so much, mm -hmm. but I just, I don't have the time, the money, the energy to, to put towards that um, with my work schedule. Um, yeah. I'd love flying if it was all fucking PJs everywhere, but PJs are very bad for the fucking world. That's why I don't fly on private yeah. jets. It's because they're bad for the world. <clears throat> um, Lucas announced, uh, says that Koenigsegg announced there will be both three-cylinder and eight-cylinder versions of the Gamera. Who is the base model Gamera marketed to? A hundred millionaires? I am uh, curious my... what the take rate will be. on The take rate on the eight V8, I think, will be 90%. My guess is China uh, mm -hmm. or possibly somewhere with a, a heavy tax on vehicles over two liters because the three cylinder is a two liter engine or it's a sub two liter yeah. engine. And when a car is like 3 million bucks, it might be, uh, it could be a big number. Maybe I um, think, I, I assume if you're buying a $3 million car, you know, one, you're, you can pay the taxes, but you're also really good at avoiding them, probably. Mm. So you'll mm -hmm. figure out a way to do that. Yeah. I, I just think the V8 is so exciting that everyone's going to order that thing. But you have a good point. Uh, That's a good point. You make a good it point. It is. And I suspect they offered the V8 later because people weren't super stoked about paying all that money for a three-cylinder. Mm. That would be my guess. Um, and maybe they, the maybe the initial orders weren't as strong as they hoped, and so they went, okay, fine, we'll do the fucking V8, and then and then people were in. Um, Suzuki Luki, thoughts on the 2015 Camaro Z28? Uh, I remember hearing a bunch about it when it came out, but I feel like I've heard no one mention it for years. I mean, that's because it's not old enough to be a classic collectible yet, um, but it's a fantastic car. I mean, yeah. Um, great car for track driving fast driving it's yeah. really exquisite but you know it's eight years old so it's in the valley right it's in the valley where it's not a collectible yet but it's not as exciting i mean the zl11 le that they were selling up until you know a year ago or two years ago had a lot more power and basically the same chassis stuff that the mm -hmm. z28 had so it it did perform better and had more modern conveniences in it but the 2015 z28 is probably a great buy and hold i think they're in the 30 40 000 range just get one with air conditioning i mean it's got an ls7 and air conditioning delete was a no cost option some people went for that hey just get the fucking air conditioning mm -hmm. um it's like 30 it doesn't pounds. it yeah. doesn't affect the power really um but yeah it's probably i agree uh luke lukey that it's probably not discussed as much as it could be and is an amazing driver's car 404 user not found says uh for a budget of around a thousand dollars for a watch would you recommend uh an automatic movement from someone like hamilton or a quartz something like citizen eco drive i mean 
I, for the most part, like watches in great part because of the machinery of the watches. Um, quartz doesn't really interest me. I only own one quartz watch and it's the, the Carl Ruiz watch. And I, I, I like that watch, but I, I own it and I love it for reasons that are completely unrelated to the movement, even though it's a Grand Seiko quartz, which is as good as quartz gets. I, I would, uh, for me, buying a watch as a mechanical thing is very important, um, typically. And the Citizen EcoDrive stuff uh, or any quartz or solar watch, Seiko solar stuff is cool. Um, it's great in terms of being a tool watch. You never have to wind it. You never have to set it. The solar stuff, you never even have to change the battery. It's a true throw it on and don't think about it kind of thing. And so if that's what you're looking for out of a watch, never really have to wind it, never really have to set it, never really have to do anything besides put it on, uh, great, great products. Um, but that's not why I love watches. And if you love watches because of their connections to engineering and machinery, I would say get the automatic. The, uh, Ted Theo Logan says, do you guys use adaptive cruise control regularly? I spent a thousand miles in my wife's Mazda three, and I don't think I like it or have a use case for it. What? Yeah. I mean, I use it all the all time. The time. Yeah, all the time. Maybe traffic doesn't vary in speed very much where Ted lives, but around even here if it does. It does. Yeah, if I'm if I'm going more than ten or fifteen miles on the freeway, I'm using it. Um, I guess it depends if your if your car has a good system or not. I don't really recall. It's been probably two or three years since I've driven a Mazda three, so I I can't really remember. But in for instance, my electric Ford. Um, which is a very good system. If I'm on the highway at all, really, I'm setting that, setting it at 80 and following the car in front of me at a reasonable distance and not touching pedals, just, mm -hmm. just steering. And, and I really like it. Um, it's great. I've, I've used it on short drives. I've used it on long drives. And, and if you're using a system that is good, yeah. Awesome. Right. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, Dante says, what are some unique road designs you've experienced in the U S or abroad examples include the Michigan left or the New Jersey jug handles where well, those are, those are two good examples. Uh, Michigan lefts fucking suck. I hate those Michigan lefts. They're dumb. I, I, I I'm sure there's a good traffic flow related reason for them but god do i hate those yeah basically you can't turn left at the light you have to go past it do a, a u-turn in a special special lane and then you make yeah. a right um in texas they have those it's similar to a michigan left but they have those the, the divided overpasses where you have like the the u-turn you know, lane, it's like those big service roads, right? Like three mm, lanes. Yeah. And then you've got the, I'm making a left. And then you've got the, I'm making a U-turn and they're divided. And you got to, you got to make that choice well before you get there. I don't love those. Those aren't so great. Um, it's very rare that I see a unique road design that is good. <laughs> Fucking wow. Dubai. Dubai without like a really good GPS is a nightmare. Um, 
Yeah, those. The Texas U-turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are not great. Everything's, like a free, everything's a freeway in Texas, basically. Yeah. It's like an exit. Uh, Dubai, the sign, the signs when you're merging from freeways don't say uh, Route 12 North and South. They only say the cities where it terminates. And so if you're not going to either of those cities, and it doesn't always go the way you think it's going to go. Like they'll go one and then they'll cross and you'll end up doing, having to do a whole lap of the fucking city. It's a nightmare. But if you're visiting and you don't know what that city yeah. is, where it terminates, you're like, which direction is that? Mm-hmm. If you're just trying to go two miles to a hotel. I haven't been in a long time, but at, at the last time I was there, which was 2015, the government owned the telecom and it was very expensive for foreigners to use data. And so it was like prohibitively expensive to use my cell phone as GPS mm. at that time. I hope it's been changed since then. Mm, I forgot. Oh, one. Did you see this story? It, was, it went around on Instagram. Uh, you know, when you're on the 110 heading east and you have to get on I-5 north. And it's yeah. weird. You have to be so for people who aren't from here, it's a very weird, somewhat dangerous exit. It's like you have to yeah. be in the left lane only. It is a very sudden left turn from a 65 yes. mile per hour highway onto like a downhill ski slope switchback type thing. Right. Um, so for a long time, <clears throat> there was no sign that said that was the exit. It just would say five north this direction. But the but, oh, you you mean the guy who made his own sign? Yeah. So an yeah. artist made a sign and went up there in the middle of the day wearing a hard hat he bought at Home Depot, added an arrow and a thing that said like this lane only. And it's been there for years. And yeah. Caltrans went, oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. Like it helps. Yeah. So you yeah. get in trouble. I, that's amazing. Yeah. And also very it, sad that it was. Needed. That story just came out again, but I remember reading it. 10 years ago on like cracked or one of those mm-hmm. websites um it had been out there before um but yeah he actually just like he did it as like a social commentary art installation but then they were like oh yeah good idea just, just he was like that. this needs to be here and it does and it's they, they left it yeah yes uh sean smith needs a luxury coupe daily driver to complement a five-car fleet I have a Model Y, a 280Z, an MR2, and an FRS. Should I get an Audi RS5, a Mercedes C63, or a Lexus RCF? Uh, Probably the RS5, I think. I don't like the RCF so much. And C63 with the 6.3 V8. I mean, that's, that's a great engine, but a bad transmission. I'd probably just want the Audi R or the Audi RS5. He's got a couple other very engaging cars. Yeah, and the RS5, I think the interior looks a little bit more timelessly elegant than the Mercedes of that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't that Mercedes? Doesn't it have the the old cell phone buttons like on yeah. the next to the, the radio? dial pad? Yeah, yeah, doesn't age great. Yeah. Uh, Luke says, are there any ugly cars that are fully redeemed by a fantastic interior? A denim gremlin, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, ugly cars redeemed by a fantastic interior. Nothing really comes to mind. Ugly cars? I'm trying to think of like... Well, new BMWs. What car- yeah, I mean the M2 has a really nice interior, yep. and that's pretty ugly. Or the M3. I haven't, I haven't been in the new Seven Series, but I imagine five. that probably has a nice interior. Yeah, 
I would say uh, all of their entire lineup could basically answer this question. Last generation Lexus LX, like the Lexus Land Cruiser with that big, ugly mouth. Mm-hmm. That had a great interior. That's true. Um, yeah. Um, Thomas wanted to talk about roundabouts, but we already covered that. Um, Andrew says, thoughts on these manufacturers skipping the design of a dashboard and just putting on tablet-shaped screens. Uh, We did talk about this last week. Is this your note, Zach? I think we talked about this last week. Um, Affirmative. Yeah, I, I think there is design there just because you don't like the design doesn't mean that's not design. But yeah, tablets are highly functional. They're something that we are now very used to. And they're upgradable. They're cheap and much cheaper than regular buttons. And manufacturers are trying to squeeze profit out of these cars while adding functionality at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's just that's just what it is. And I think the average non-enthusiast see the average consumer sees a a tablet or a big screen as being futuristic and advanced. It's only us fucking cranky enthusiasts that, well, I don't want to say that because there's been some stories recently that consumers are souring on screens, but, Mm -hmm. but I think that the manufacturers think that their customers like screens. Which makes sense when we are interacting with screens more and more with you know, smartphone, tablet, TV, computer. It, it. I feel like it's a natural progression for the cars to kind of go in that direction, and maybe mm-hmm. we're learning they swing, they swung too far. This is a great question. Bad Gardener says, "Be a lifestyle podcast for the next sixty seconds. Do you have cheap wines, magic deodorants, etc., or other great products to recommend?" That's a pretty good one, actually. Um, they're, they've, they're an advertiser now, but the AeroPress is the best coffee maker in history. And we were using it long before they advertised. What? Zach, you okay? Yeah, I got it. Just keep going. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, what else? I'm trying to think what else is in my house. That's like amazing that I love and use all the time. I have this little stand thing that is holding my laptop up. Uh, like vertically, and I'm, I'll show it. But like this, that that raises my laptop. That's that's really functional. I bought a second monitor off an Instagram ad that was three hundred and fifty dollars, and it looks like an iPad Pro, but it's just a monitor that is powered by USB C. I think it's called Espresso Displays, and I'm now carrying that around everywhere. That's fucking great. Um, Let's see. Magic deodorants. Uh, uh, Yeah, I don't I don't I don't have any like great, uh, great products. My moleskin notebooks. Awesome. Um, Those zebra pens they sent us are really great. Love the zebra pens. Um, Uh, I mean, a frugal hack is you can uh, mail out for a sampler of colognes from a company and they'll give you like six to eight of them and then you get them for free and cologne lasts a long time that lasts a very long I feel like time. that lines up with the cheap wine i don't know cheap wine is hard what do i i feel like i drank something recently that was only like 20 bucks and it was really good air tags gotta have air tags they're fucking useful for all kind of stuff um hmm. 
I don't have anything else that's like, wow, this was $2. I mean, I'm sure I do somewhere. It's a great question, though. I'll consider that for next next show. Maybe I can make a list of the things I love in my life. Bring a, um, bring a water bottle to airports, and you can refill it for free and save yourself mm-hmm. 6 to 12 bucks. Yeah. Wife does that. Um, Christian Pelfrey, when will you review the Mazda CX-90? Never. Just it just won't do well on our. I mean, maybe we could get one and talk about it on the podcast, but there won't be like a video of it. Just the, those those are they're not worth making. Aiden Squires, I feel like people have asked us this before. Yeah. Ultimate last drive road and car. Uh, uh, Swiss Alps McLaren F1. I think because I just read the new road and track, uh, I'd go Ferrari F50. Try try that out somewhere mm-hmm. and anywhere mm-hmm. that suits that car. Uh, RD Speed Garage, watched your video on the Gen 2 Ford GT. Do you still feel the same way about it today? At this price, is there something else you would choose over over this for long term ownership? Well, I I don't I haven't looked back at the thing I did in 2017 in five years. I haven't really driven one since then. So I would, I don't know what I said. Um, I, I would buy one of those if I could immediately. Like they just, they look great. They sound great. We know that the arrow is amazing. The powertrain is super robust. Uh, they drive well, reasonably reliable. As long as you, you know, get the four GT guys to come and do the maintenance on it. Like you mean, you're, just, you, he says he's talking about gen two, like the current one. Oh, I thought, well, oh, I was counting. I was counting the first one from the 60s as Gen 1. My oh, mistake. Right. It's, uh, Gen so, 2 has not interested me. I think it is one of the most beautiful cars ever made, but it's between transmission, engine. I don't know. I, I never drove one, though, so speaking out of school. Uh, I, it, was, it was an amazing experience to drive it. It's clearly, clearly a homologation race car. There are mm-hmm. very few truly homologated race cars in the world these days, and that's one of them. I would rather have a an 04 to 06 GT because as a road car, it's a more it's a better road car to me. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather have that. And I'm pretty sure I said that in the video. Um, the performance of a Gen 2 car is batshit, but I don't necessarily need that in my life. Uh, Micah Moore says, how do you plan a story around a car you've never driven? Do you write both outcomes? If a car is great or terrible, do you leave enough leeway for editorializing on the fly? Uh, I write the first part of the video based on technical data provided to us from the manufacturer, vibes, and historical context. We then record the in-car, and if there is not an obvious conclusion with the in-car, I write the conclusion after we've driven it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so JCA wants specifics on ordering, uh, my, my special watch. Basically, here's how it works. Once they are ready to take orders, they will provide me the order link. I will then post that link in the Patreon feed, which is where you will get it in an email. You then want to buy it that day. When you get the email that says, here's the link to order the watch, you should buy it that very day. Otherwise, you might not get it, 
even if you're a patron. Um, we have 90 watches to sell. The first 10 are going to people that I know personally and who have who uh, get priority, and then patrons get the next 90. So you're gonna, it's not, you don't need to monitor anything else besides your Patreon email that says, that's gonna say, here's the link to buy it. And then you should buy it that day. Um, okay, wait. Uh, okay. Um, Greg says, went on a long road trip recently and rented a few different hybrid and plug-in hybrid vehicles on Turo to try something new. I tried a Pacifica hybrid, RAV4 Prime, and CRV hybrid. I love the cars, but got annoyed with the generic eco versus power meters. I understand that with hybrids and EVs, things like coolant temps and oil pressure are not something to be monitored, but wanted your opinion on what information should be on the screen. You know, those that gauge, that eco power gauge. Mm-hmm. I feel like they just put that gauge there so that something moves around a lot. Remember like the BMW fuel economy gauge that just went back and mm-hmm. forth and back and forth. People like gauges that actually move a lot, I think. Yeah. And they just put that there for that. I think there's also some game theory where you can, you get to play a game of like, Ooh, can I stay in the eco range? And it's like a weird little video game for you while you drive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it also is good programming for the driver. You know, yeah. Uh, my Ford has a good one, which is just it doesn't. It's typically hybrids that that have that gauge. The Prius did it first. The Prius had that schematic of the mm-hmm. car, and it showed the flow of power around yeah. the car. And everyone's kind of done it from them. Um, my car just has the has the the Regen braking coach. So if you if you use the Regen instead of the brake pedal. And you you can use it all the way. It gives you a percentage from zero to a hundred of how good and efficient your braking was. So that's a good game. Come to a stop without touching the pedal. It's like one hundred percent perfect score. Mm-hmm. So there's I, that. I like it on EVs too because you just I like paying attention to how much of the power I'm using versus how much I'm actually recharging it by slowing down. And I think, like you said, it coaches the driver to be more aware of how they are using whether you know gasoline or um, charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris says, does your foot ever slip while heel and towing? This has happened to me a few times and given me a big scare. Never. We yeah. are perfect. <laughs> uh, it, it's happened to me a couple of times. Yeah. My foot has slipped off pedals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, um, try not to be at the limit where that's happened. You know, if you're, if, if you're driving on a public road, and you're not leaving yourself room for that kind of thing, you're going too fast on a public road. You know, you you shouldn't be like threshold breaking on a public road. Um, but good footwear, good pedal placement, um, you know, uh, uh, and good good foot technique. You shouldn't have, it shouldn't happen too often. Probably happens to me like once a year. Yeah, I mean, and but, look, if your foot, if you're, if you're heel toe braking and your foot slips off your brake pedal, you can always just jump full clutch and then just modulate the brake and coast through the corner. Like you can just throw away the corner. You know, you don't have to stay on the gas because you have fucked up your downshift or whatever. Like, like yeah. you said, leave a cushion and then have a plan for when that happens that, you know, leads to you getting successfully around the corner. Okay. Uh, three more. 
Your Uber driver says I have a 2013 Mini with a six-speed base model, fun to drive. It's stock, but it's clean, uh, and it needs minimal TLC. I'm planning to do some mods and even K-swap it in the future. Is it worth further investing in this car to make it my own and enjoy it? Or should I sell it as is and go all in for an NC Miata or GR86 and enjoy a rear-wheel drive experience? I've never owned a manual rear-wheel drive car, and I also have a 4Runner. I mean, that's a that's a weird question because the, you're asking us to tell you what experience you want to have like do you want to have a rear wheel drive experience like then sure sell it and get a rear wheel drive car you you don't need a back seat in your car because you have a forerunner for when you need to carry around more people you know but would i k swap a base mini like probably not i, I know that doesn't seem like a undertaking that's worth doing um, I mean, I don't, I don't think you should put too much emphasis on front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive, unless it's an experience you want to have. If you want to have a rear wheel drive sports car experience, the Miata and the 86 are both great and you don't need a back seat because you have another car. Would I do a bunch of mods and case swap a base mini probably not for what it would cost to do that you could probably just buy the miata or the 86 outright mm -hmm. and have a third car like if you wanted to case swap something like i would sell the mini and get a fit and do a k24 swap in that which would be much more affordable much more plug and play and you'd have a rocket ship yeah and there's going to be uh, form instructions on how to do it because you're not the first one to do it. Right. A case swap mini sounds cool, but this so much of this depends on what is your mechanical ability. Have you ever done a swap like that before? Is this like your first project idea, which seems way too ambitious? Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. Right. Ben says, are you excited for the new Land Cruiser? I no, I don't care. In, I want to see it in person. I'm, Am I excited for it? No. I don't give a shit. It looks nice, but like I'm not in the market, so I don't care. People that are Land Cruiser people are excited for it. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for the McLaren 750. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Leonard Meredith, uh, speaking of McLaren, I need to replace the tires on my 720S. The stock P0s were definitely not up for the test. Would Cup 2s be a good choice? Or do you have another suggestion used mostly for spirited weekend group drives? You do not need cup twos. Correct. Um, you do not need any R compound tire for a McLaren 720. Um, and your group drive, I don't know where you live, but if rain suddenly appeared on your group drive with cup twos, then you will be very slow and nervous for the entire, uh, the entire drive. Yeah. I would, I would recommend a, a PS4S uh, Michelin, or, um, I mean, if you didn't like the Pirelli P0s, you may want to go to a P0 Corsa, which is, you don't want the Trofeo. That's the Cup 2 the, the cup two equivalent, but the Corsa might have some more grip. I thought the P0s on the 720 were all right. 
um they 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 definitely um if you don't think they're enough i would probably go with a michelin ps4s um when you're talking about 800 horsepower that's that's really the best tire around for that um or or a pirelli corsa all right that's our show uh we are back live folks what tomorrow Mm -hmm. tuesday 9 a.m We've got Jesse Singer uh, coming on the show from New York. Jesse is the author of a great book called There Are No Accidents. Uh, The term accident is used uh, usually following the word car, Uh, but but that is a term that for many reasons is wildly misleading and deflects a lot of blame for what causes a crash, a death, and uh and and also it's not just about cars it's about homes it's about accident prone people it's about what type of people are uh victims of accidents what type of people are not victims of accidents and how that does relate to cars this was a great book um uh jesse was on parental leave and so i finished the book several months ago and uh but i've been waiting to get jesse on the podcast ever since and uh really excited to talk to her about this uh tomorrow and so if you're watching live tomorrow tuesday uh the first at 9 a.m pacific otherwise or 9 30 a.m pacific um otherwise uh thursday for the rest of you guys uh send your tea bags to zach for Mm -hmm. his throat because it's fucked and uh thanks for listening we'll see you later